So, the Lord is going through a series of judgments, and then we get glimpses into the future for the whole world and the millennial reign of Jesus Christ and the future of Israel. And we come to chapter 14, and in verse 1, it says, For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will still choose Israel and settle them in their own land. The strangers will be joined with them and they will cling to the house of Jacob. Then people will take them and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel will possess them for servants and maids in the land of the Lord. They will take them captive whose captives they were and rule over their oppressors. So it has the immediate fulfillment once they were released from their captivity. They were in Babylon, the first phase of the northern tribes being captured by Assyria and taken away as slaves. And then the impending threat came of the two southern tribes of Judah, and the Lord stays that, and we'll talk about that a bit, and they're given a reprieve and more time, and then many years later, they're conquered also and taken away into captivity and serve as slaves, and then the Lord allows them to be released as Cyrus comes and conquers Babylon, and the power shifts over the Medo-Persians, and uh, they... Uh, recognizing Cyrus, recognizing uh, you know, the sovereignty of God in uh, the prophets, speaking of him by name 150 years before he was born. Uh, so that very moving uh, understanding and wisdom from God causes him to declare that uh, their slavery is over. And there's some incremental process that takes place, but eventually they're back in the land and they're well established. So you get that local fulfillment. And like we've talked about with prophecy, there's very often sort of these layered fulfillments. You get the first fulfillment uh, that might occur, like in this case, uh, you know, within a, you know, a short period of time. Then you see later there's a greater fulfillment. You know, today, you, know, you can see that looking back, the nation of Israel having rejected Jesus as the Messiah, 70 A.D., they're driven out of the land. Now, uh, we're going to get into chapter 15, and you're going to see Philistia judged there. And uh, if you, um, you know, are familiar with what Rome did as they drove Israel out of the land in 70 A.D., they renamed the land Palestine, you know, you hear in the news and even in you know textbooks the reference to the Palestinians. Okay, there's no such thing. And I don't mean to be smug. I'm not trying to be insultive. They were wiped out. God's judgment came upon them. The Philistines. Okay, that's the Latin. You know, the Philistia. You know, the Palestine. That's the Latin uh, word for the Philistines. You know, most everybody's familiar with. Goliath. You don't meet uh, Philistines. They don't exist anymore. Uh, Rome renamed the land Palestine, the Latin term for, you know, Philistia or Philistines, the perennial enemy of Israel. They were insultively trying to disgrace them in 70 AD. The people who came in, mostly Arabs, were then named Palestinians. They're not Palestinians. They're not Philistines. They're not from Philistia. That, that is, you know, Rome's effort to insult Israel as they drive them from the land. They don't exist as a nation in any geographic location for the next 1,500 years. No nation in world history driven from its borders survives one generation. It, they're done. Their culture, their language is lost, their music, their art, their food, gone. Just like that. 
As soon as they're driven out of their borders, they get absorbed into the other countries that they disperse to. There has been no country in history that has survived a single generation. It was actually 2,000 years before they made a full reestablishment into their country. And now they're intact. What's most remarkable, you can see, music intact, food intact, culture intact, religion intact. What's most remarkable is their language. Still there. The people are preserved. One of the things I just had a discussion about yesterday was um, another student was talking to me about uh, the genetic studies that have been done. People coming back into the land, they want to know, what's my heritage? A bunch of people are doing that now. You send your DNA away. They do the testing, all that stuff. Well, uh, Israel has done a number of tests on known graves. They have known graves of their kings and their lords and the nobility uh, throughout the country. And so they know, well, this king is from that tribe and that king. So they've actually got those DNA, DNA markers from tribes. Jews are showing back up in the land having their DNA tests done and their specific tribe's markers are still intact. God has preserved the people. Some of them are muddied up and intermingled and mixed. I'm not trying to say that it's you know a completely pure bloodline. What I'm saying is God has preserved them as a people. You know, when we're seeing here the Lord saying he's going to have mercy on Jacob, Israel, as a nation. He's going to bring them back in. Yeah, it has that local fulfillment. It also has a greater fulfillment. We're still seeing fulfillment take place today. And there's fulfillment that's still ahead of us, as God is going to protect and preserve his people and continue to cause them to expand. Now, this statement, as it ends, they will take captive those whose captives they were, and rule over their oppressors. That is most definitely ahead of us. That's only happened to a minor degree in their entire history. Uh, not enough to where uh, we, I, I don't think we would say that they have you know, taken uh, those nations who held them captive and made them their servants. Uh, the day is coming where they're going to become a superpower. Jesus Christ is going to rule on his throne. The nation of Israel is going to be where he rules from. The Messiah is going to call every nation into submission to him. All of the nations will be forced to appear before him and receive his pronounced judgment. And when we, when we say every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, it, it is literal. Those nations are going to be called into account, and they're going to. It looks like they're actually going to be given ten days to appear in person. His throne is going to be established, and the judgment is going to come. They will be the servants of Jesus Christ and His people. Fourteen three, it shall come to pass in the day of the, the excuse me in the day the Lord gives you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and the hard bondage in which you were made to serve, that you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon. So God judging each of these nations that have come against them and say how the oppressor has ceased. The golden city ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers. He who struck the people in wrath with a continual stroke. He who ruled the nations in anger is persecuted and no one hinders. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. Indeed, the cypress trees rejoice over him and the cedars of Lebanon sang, Since you were cut down, no woodsman has come up against us. Hell from beneath is excited about you to meet you at your coming. It stirs up the dead for you, all the chief ones of the earth. It has raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. They all shall speak and say to you, 
Have you also become as weak as we? Have you become like us? Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the, the place of the dead or the grave, and the sound of your stringed instruments. The maggot is spread under you. The worms cover you. That's a pleasant picture to say the least there. Uh, the idea of Babylon and all of its glory, you'll remember, you know, as Nebuchadnezzar uh, was being taught by Daniel, he had that dream. And he saw all of the coming nations that were to follow. And in the midst of the explanation, he's told, you're the first, the head of gold. And so, resultingly, he's humbled at first, but resultingly, what does he do? He builds a statue. Seemingly, it is similar to what he saw in his dream, but he makes the whole thing gold. You know, the idea uh, seems to be that he's saying, oh, you know, none of this being conquered and other nations and generations taking over after me. If I'm the head of gold, then let's just make the whole statue gold and let's say that nobody gets to take over. I'm going to rule. I'm going to be the king. I'm going to be the king of everything. And of course, God humbles him, right? It's got to be humbling when you've lost your mind and you're now clawing around in the grass and eating straw like an animal for you know a long period of time. Your sanity comes back to you later and you confess that God alone is the authority who gets to raise up kingdoms and put them down. You know, the only pagan in the entire history of the scripture to write an entire chapter of the Bible. And Nebuchadnezzar professing God's glory once his sanity has been restored to him. Uh, he's going to be brought low. Now, it's going to happen in phases. If you think about what the Scripture says about Babylon, no other city is mentioned more frequently. I shouldn't say that. Only Jerusalem is mentioned more frequently in the Bible than Babylon. It goes all the way to the book of Revelation. Babylon is finally judged in its you know absolute form in uh, Revelation where we see, you know, Woe, woe unto Babylon, the great who's fallen, and then the judgment comes there to that great city. This idea that you know, all the kings of the earth have sort of looked to that great example, you know, the, the first world empire, the one who dominated everyone, and then subsequently each nation or, or conglomerate of nations that took over the world after that was modeling themselves after the original. They, they were copying the practices. They were copying the military conquest. They were trying to either be like or exceed Babylon in their conquest, in their, you know, their nature. And so the kings of the earth, when they see that final fall, they're going to greet Babylon and its rulers with that mindset of, you know, have you come all the way down to the level that we are currently at? And, and this next section um, is uh, really <clears throat> more to do with why God has that picture of Babylon sort of extending through time. So look at verse 12, where it says, How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. You shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Um, the it goes on, we'll get to it in just a second, but the idea that Lucifer, Satan, uh, is tied into this fall of Babylon. You, you may recall 
that uh, the prophet Daniel is uh, in captivity in Babylon. He's reading the writings of the prophet Jeremiah, and he comes across the passage that tells him the nation of Israel is only going to be captive for 70 years. And he's realizing, if I'm reading this right, then we're nearing the end of our captivity. So he begins to pray and ask the Lord to give him wisdom about the future of Israel. Now, uh, we get the backstory just a few verses later, but an angel arrives uh, 21 days later and says, the moment you began to pray, I was dispatched to come to you, but the prince of Persia, basically captured me. I've, I've been doing battle with the prince of Persia for 21 days. I would have been here nearly instantaneously, but this spiritual entity kept me from getting here. Now, Persia, you know, if, if we're talking about that Middle Eastern region, we're talking about the same region. You think about the way that the scripture begins there and then throughout sort of lets us see that the angelic forces are given authority over regions. They're, they're allowed authority over regions. And so uh, Lucifer, Satan, you know, having his great influence over these subsequent uh you know, world powers, Babylon, you know, controlling them, Medo-Persian Empire, you know, each of the subsequent nations. You know, Adolf Hitler was being led by men who were what they called enlightened masters in white magic. They, they were st students of the occult. They were engaged in practices to gain wisdom, to gain understanding. His movement through Europe was effective because of the spiritual power that was allowed to him. You know, most people are unaware. I've talked about it many times. Most people are unaware that that success continued until Winston Churchill asked the world to join him in a day of prayer and fasting. And that's where it halted, was when Winston Churchill recognized there's not going to be any victory. We are going to lose. Adolf Hitler is going to conquer the world. We have to invoke the power of Almighty God to rescue us from this. And that's where the whole tide turned. Some uh, historians say that that is the day Adolf Hitler lost his mind. He, he recalled all of his generals to uh, Germany, to Berlin. Uh, in the recall, many of his generals understood uh, this is our defeat. He, he had it in his mind uh, in that moment as, as Winston Churchill asked the world to join him in prayer and fasting. Adolf Hitler, uh, from some of his writings, uh, confessed that he had it in his mind that this was a ploy. The ease at which he had taken Europe was a ploy and that somehow he was being drawn into being conquered. So he paused the conquest to regroup with his generals. His generals understood that's it. The forward momentum is over. The allied forces will regroup and we just lost the victory. Several of them band together and hatched assassination plots to try and kill Adolf Hitler. The, the, the power behind Babylon was Lucifer himself. The power behind these wicked world entities that have risen up over and over again was Lucifer himself. He can't control the whole world. He can't control, he's not God. He can't be everywhere at once. You know, when, when we're seeing this set, these five points that he makes 
here. You've said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will be like the most high. He, he has these delusions in his own mind that cause him to function in very specific ways. Uh, this, this confession here that we get from the Scripture lets us see into Satan's mind a little bit. Think about this, you guys. When we're, when we're looking at evolution and saying, where did that concept come from? You know, is, is this rooted in a reality or is this something invented and created by men? In this, I think I see the root of evolution. I think that I see Lucifer having to convince himself God has not always been like this. God has not always been God. He must have been, I believe, Lucifer is saying, God must have at some, some point been like me, Lucifer. If he can say, I'm going to change. If you're looking at Almighty God, you have that profound sense of, I'm less than him. Even within this, he's saying that. I will exalt myself. I'm currently not exalted, but I eventually will exalt myself above you. So in that is the confession of, I'm less than you. He has to have convinced himself, God at some point must have been like me, and he has accomplished being God. I will be able to at some point accomplish being God. I'll conquer God. I'll overtake him. At some point I will become like him or I will become greater than him. Think about this, you guys. Every single world religion has that belief system at its root. I, I will become God. You know, Buddhism. I will become at one with God. I will become assimilated into God. I will become part of the collective soul that is God. Hinduism. Same thing, slightly different package. Mormonism. I, I, I will become a God of another planet. My wife will join me. We'll procreate. We'll create beings that will serve us. We'll become gods on another planet. Every, every other religion has this at its root core. So you have to conquer, right? You have to conquer whatever power is present. He becomes the world power. That's, that can't stay because they have to be judged for what they've done to Israel. So God's going to diminish Babylon. Well, okay, move the focus from Babylon over to the Medo-Persian Empire. Lucifer just swaps over and becomes the next world empire and the next world. And here we hear God saying, Lucifer's going to finally be put down. He's going to finally reach his point of judgment. He's going to stop, you know, think about that. He, he raises up a world leader, uses him to rise into power, and then swaps teams and becomes that person's enemy and begins to attack him as he raises up the next world power and the next and the next. It's, it's a vicious cycle that we see. Here, Lucifer is being judged. You're, you're going to be saying, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the depths of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners? He, he treated those that he took captive with a special cruelty. All the king's of the nations, all of them sleep in glory, everyone in his own house, but you were cast out of your grave like an abominable branch, like the garment of those who were slain. 
thrust through with a sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a corpse trodden underfoot. So the idea, and I've pointed this out in our study of Revelation, when it becomes time to conquer Satan, when it becomes time to capture Satan, uh, God dispatches one angel. There's, there's not an army of angels that he has to send. God doesn't have to rise up off from his throne and arm himself and go out and engage in some cataclysmic battle that when it comes time to conquer and capture Satan, God dispatches one angel. He's captured and he's thrown into prison. And here we're hearing what the occupants of hell are going to be saying. They're literally, you know, while it says the kings are laid to rest in their glory, it's talking about their earthly graves, right? Satan's not going to have any of that. There's not going to be some giant monument to Lucifer made of all, you know, black marble where everyone can just stare in awe at this, you know, being who once was. He's going to be captured and cast into hell. The occupants of hell, I like how the uh, King James says, you know, here it says they're going to gaze upon him. Uh, in uh, the King James Version, it says they're going to squint at him. Literally the idea of like, like seriously, this is it? You know, like, you're going to be kidding me. This is This is the guy that led the whole world astray that has done so much damage all through history. The power, you know, I, I often ask this question and you'll get, you know, I, in youth groups is usually where I do it, teen retreats, things of that nature. I'll ask, you know, what is the greatest power that Satan has? And you'll get all kinds of various answers, you know, and they'll, they'll talk about big things and different things and little things. It's lies. I mean, his greatest strength, yes, it's incorporated in lots of other areas. It's deception, it's lies, it's confusion that comes from it. Just turn everybody against one another. Just just insert falsehood and just let everybody mangle themselves on that. When he arrives at his final destination, everybody's just going to be astonished that this, this is it. He's being escorted in by one angel, you know, there isn't like an elite team of, you know, hunter-killer angels who had to go out and, you know, in a massive squad or some huge battalion. and get one, one angel is just signing him into hell. How remarkable. How remarkable. Oh, if we would just fall under the protection of our great God and King. 20, you will not be joined with them in burial because you have destroyed your land, slain your people. The brood of evildoers shall never be named. Prepare slaughter for his children because of the iniquity of their fathers, lest they rise up and possess the land and fill the face of the world with cities. So anyone that he would influence, you know, those children of his that he would have had power over cause they're not going to rise to power it's an amazing thing to consider the complete changes that are going to take effect once jesus christ rules on the earth yeah, I just having a conversation with one of the inmates uh, at uh, hancock county jail last night and he's just saying you know i i wish god had just he's I'm paraphrasing, but he's saying, I wish God had just created us as robots. I wish I'd never had the freedom to choose. Wish, wish there wasn't any opportunity for evil. And I, I had that discussion with him about, you know, true love has, you know, those two things incorporated. One, free will, and two, opportunity. You know, you've got the freedom to choose and the opportunity to choose something other than God. That's that's what true love is, is, is when you have freedom to choose and the opportunity to choose something else, and yet you choose the thing that you're supposed to love. 
That's, that's our relationship with God. But the day will come where Lucifer is confined and Jesus Christ will rule this planet and most of that will completely disappear. And I do mean most of it because the nations are still going to be given the opportunity to come and submit themselves. And we also read that he will dash to pieces with a rod of iron those who refuse. I, I would imagine that the list of those who refuse is going to be short. Because, I mean, even if you were intending to, when you watch you know, your neighbor get dashed to pieces, you're like, never mind. You know, you know I abandon my plan. I hereby you know, surrender yourself to the Lord. 1422. For I will rise up against them, says the Lord of hosts. I will cut off from Babylon the name and remnant and offspring and posterity, says the Lord. So, I mean, he's he's shifting back and forth uh, between discussions about Babylon and Lucifer. And he gives us that very clear indicator as he addresses Lucifer directly. Now, coming back to uh, Babylon being destroyed, you know, I'm going to cut off from Babylon, the name and remnant and offspring and posterity, says the Lord. I will also make it a possession of the porcupine, the marshes of muddy water. I will sweep it with a broom of destruction, says the Lord of hosts. Now, he shifts in uh, verse 24 to discuss Assyria and what's going to go on there. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, as of I have thought, so it shall come to pass. And as I have proposed, so it shall stand. Um, I, before we discuss Assyria, I just want to talk generally about God saying that. If I've declared a thing, that's the way it's going to be. That, that's, these are the words of the Lord. There's, there's no changing what God has declared. You know, uh, Matthew 24, 35, uh, you know, heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will by no means disappear. What God has declared is going to take place. Um, you know, the cataclysmic things that are, you know, gonna happen ahead of us, and we read in the book of Revelation, I just stumbled across an interesting article today published in the news about the um, magnetic pole shifts. So you've, you've heard about uh, some of this, um, and you know, there have been things that have gone along. Well, the the uh, the theory is that the magnetic poles are in place, and uh, you know, the uh, the navigational uh, positioning of north and south pole is uh, you know, it's it's magnetic, and it's it's there because of the theory is that the liquid iron that's inside the earth, the superheated metal that's flowing through the earth is conducting this uh, magnetic energy uh, to the north and south. You get that polarized effect. So, so that you understand, the, so like some of the evidence we have of this going on, lightning is an excellent uh, understanding of this. So as evaporation occurs on many different levels, uh, the uh, water particles, and this is one of the clearest examples, uh, uh, rising up off the earth are carrying that positively charged energy with them into the clouds. The clouds uh, gathering that positively charged energy collect until they're overcharged. And once they're overcharged, then they conduct the electricity back to the ground. So the evidence, you know, one of the evidence is that 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 energy is real, not just, you know, imagined or, you know, theoretical or mystical, is that there's real energy flowing through our atmosphere that can be measured and, and literally at times seen. And there are some other aspects to it that are quite remarkable about how the released energy from the clouds releases the nitrogen in the soil, which causes plant growth. There's some cool stuff uh, to study, but uh, focusing on that magnetic whole system there's a, a shift that has been occurring and uh the, the, they believe that what's going to happen is that the poles are going to flip that your south pole is going to become your north pole and your north north pole is going to become your south pole 
And uh, that is going to have a cataclysmic effect upon the planet when that dramatic shift occurs. Um, scientists studying this have come to think, based upon a number of different evidences that they've discovered, that this has actually happened uh, a number of times. And there are various opinions about how many times, and I'm not even going to try to weigh in on that, but that this pole has shift and shifted. And with that, when it occurs, the planet's actually shifted around, like dramatic things have happened because, I mean, seas and tides are going to be affected and all kinds of stuff. So just so I can scare the stuffing out of you, um, they've actually had to call for a panicked update on navigational systems like this week because the poles, while they've been shifting, have started to accelerate in their shift so dramatically that if they don't do something right now, airplanes could literally be landing in swamps next to airstrips. The navigational systems calculation would be off, and when you're landing at night and when you're landing under conditions where visibility is poor or no visibility, ships navigating through channels, when you're using GPS coordinates that are based upon... Now, when I say dramatically, how about this? It's now at an accelerated rate of shifting 43 miles a year. That's dramatic. The pole is shifting from its northern position in Canada, sliding. They're, they referred to it today as jittering towards Siberia. When God says that these dramatic events are going to happen, how much is this going to tie in? I'm trying to be dramatic here, okay? So don't, like, go home and, you know, I don't know to what degree this is going to affect things. I mean, you listen to some people, and they're like, nothing's going to happen. You talk to other people, and they're like, end of the world, okay? So my suspicion is somewhere in between there, Okay. And then you read the end of the book, right? And dramatic things, right? Every island is every island is going to sink. You know, Matt, you might want to consider getting out of Hall Quarry right now. You know, I don't know. I don't know how well the campground's going to fare, Eric. You know what I'm saying? I just every island, you know, is going to sink. Mountains are going to fall. Mountains are going to rise up. The earth is going to be changed. I, I'm not saying necessarily directly because of this magnetic shift. What I am saying is dramatic things are currently happening to where the scientists of the world are having to gather together and make adjustments so that literally your GPS system on your cell phone is guiding you to the right location when you're looking for directions. So that our friend, you know, Tip McDonald, when he's following GPS coordinates through the Chesapeake Bay to guide ships that are as big as buildings into port, those things are happening properly. You know, when our friend Joe Keeney is landing an airplane based upon the instrumentation it's happening right. They're going to have to update everything regarding the magnetic poles. You know, it was two years ago I read an article about an airstrip in Florida that had to repaint all of the numbering system on their runways because they were several degrees off. You know, when you when they tell you to come in on highway, you know, or highway or runway 19, that's the degree of angle that they're telling you to come in on. If you're off by three degrees. It makes landing really precarious. Okay, so dramatic changes are current are, are currently happening, and when the Lord declares a thing, there's no changing it. You know, I, I'm telling you, as I have thought, God is saying, so it shall come to pass. And He's specifically talking about Syria. But when you read the Scripture, and the Lord has declared it, whatever it is, it's going to come to pass. And as I have pronounced, so it shall stand. 25, that I will break the Assyrian in my hand, and on my mountains tread him underfoot. 
Then his yoke shall be removed from them and his burden removed from their shoulders. This is specifically speaking of the occasion where Assyria comes down to Jerusalem and they're setting up to besiege them and they're literally on the mountain straight across from the city building their encampment, readying readying to besiege the city and Israel gets up the next morning and there's dead bodies everywhere. And they go out and an angel of the Lord has come into the camp of the Assyrians and wiped out 185,000 in a single night. God is saying, I'm not going to allow for what I have said will not be allowed to take place. You think about Psalm chapter 2. You know, why do the heathen rage? Why do these evil people plot these stupid, vain things? You're going to rise up against God. You're going to rise up against His Son. God laughs and holds them in derision. He's going to accomplish His will. (coughs) So 26 says, This is the purpose that I uh, proposed against the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has proposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? 1428, you come to this discussion of Philistia, or, you know, you can just sort of substitute that idea of the Philistines and uh, the nation that has been the perennial enemy. So this is the burden which came in the year of King Ahaz, died. Do not rejoice, all you of Philistia, because the rod that struck you is broken. For out of the serpent's root will come forth a viper, and its offspring will be a fiery flying serpent. The firstborn of the poor will feed, and the needy will lie down in safety. I will kill your root with famine, and I will slay your remnant. Wail, O gate, cry, O city, all you of Philistia are dissolved, for smoke will come from the north, and no one will be alone in his appointed times. This, uh, you know, great statement of death that is going to come upon uh, the nation. They're they're looking at the death of Ahaz, and Philistia is thinking, there, their great leader is gone, and now we're going to be able to conquer them. You know, Israel is diminished, and we'll be able to go down and take Judah and we'll, we'll destroy them. And God is saying, it's not going to happen for you. You know, what you thought has died off is going to have offspring that's going to come up and it's going to destroy you. You know, the smoke is going to come. Something that you sort of think of as inconsequential, you know, smoke drifting in. You know, you might take notice of it, but you're not going to be you know, overwhelmed with that thought. It's going to build until it has just wiped everyone out. No one's going to be alone in their death. You know, people are going to be dying in mass, and God is going to make sure that his people are protected. What will they answer? The messengers of the nations that the Lord has founded Zion, and the poor of his people shall take refuge in it. God has founded Israel. It isn't some plan of men. It isn't something that men have done in their plans and can be struck down. I I laugh out loud often when I hear people talking about you know Israel as though you know it it's in the wrong and it can be conquered and that it'll someday be you know done away with and forgotten and you know like the UN is going to actually succeed. Oh, it's foolish. It's foolish to consider that any of those things are possible. And, you know, people say, well, look at the corruption of Israel. Well, for one, a lot of what is described as corruption in Israel is nothing more than the propaganda of wicked nations speaking against them. Okay? Uh, On the side where clearly it's made up of human beings, so there has to be corruption there to the degree that there is corruption there, God is going to deal with them. God doesn't let his people go unpunished. Uh, So, 
his plans are going to be accomplished. We just heard that same thing. Uh, you know, that when God has declared a thing, it's going to take place. You don't get the opportunity to see God's plans come to nothing. 15 verse 1, the burden against Moab. Now, a lot of this detail, <coughs> um, you know, speaking of specific locations and specific cities, I think that the bigger picture is to remember that Moab comes from Israel. So Abraham's nephew Lot, having escaped the fiery judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, his two daughters getting him drunk, literally having intercourse with him and becoming pregnant by their own father in an incestuous relationship, Moab was born. The nation came forth. This is part of the reason that God forbids them from having anything to do. Israel is not to have anything to do with them because it emerged from this drunken, incestuous relationship of Lot with his daughters. Now, uh, we can clearly lay the blame on his daughter's shoulders, but then you have to reach back to the father and say, Lot is the man who raised this family, created these circumstances that resulted in this. So, you know, this whole thing being as corrupt as it is, simultaneously keep in mind that David's family line reaches back to Ruth, who was a Moabitess, which also tells us that Jesus' family line reaches through Moab also. The grace of God is the point, that while there are sinful histories and characteristics, at the same time, the grace of God is unchanged. His love extends to everyone. So as we read through this, you know, Moab has sort of oscillated back and forth uh, between not really caring about Israel and what's going on over there to actually being their enemy and, uh, you know, doing bad things to them. So now God is proclaiming his judgments against Moab, the burden against Moab, because in the night Ar of Moab is laid waste and destroyed, because in the night Kerr of Moab is laid waste and destroyed. He has gone up to the temple of Dibon, to the high places to weep. Moab will wail over Nebo and over Mediba, and all their heads will be baldness. They're, they're going to shave their heads, and every beard cut. This was a sign of intense mourning. Much like when we were reading about Babylon in the way that uh, they were used by the Lord, but then when they were used by the Lord, they become especially wicked and arrogant. God punishes them. You know, they, they have that mentality where God raises them up to be this powerful nation, and they develop the attitude like Nebuchadnezzar did of, look what I've made of myself. Look how powerful I've become. Look how cruel I'm going to be to you know, neighboring nations and to the people that I conquer. Similar thing going on here with Moab. Moab, in its wickedness, has turned itself against God. And God is saying, okay, you're going to be led into a place where you're going to be conquered, you're going to be destroyed, these particular cities are going to be wiped out, and the mourning is going to be intense. Everyone's going to shave their head. They're going to you know, crop their beards off. In a Middle Eastern culture, especially in these ancient times, for a man to cut off his beard or shave off his beard uh, was incredibly shameful. Remember that occasion where the enemies of Israel had captured those men of David's and shaved off half of their beards. And, and uh, you know, David told the men it was so shameful. He said, stay where you are until your beards have grown out. So, again... I'm just following biblical example here. But anyway, so, uh, you know, Nebo and their heads of baldness and beards cut off. In their streets, they will clothe themselves with sackcloth. 
on the tops of their houses and in their streets, everyone will wail, weeping bitterly. That public display that's so common, uh, even to this day in Middle Eastern cultures, of, of high, shrill wailing and crying, sackcloth uh, being those garments made probably from camel's hide. You know, the, the camel's hair being oily and sticky and very coarse like straw. Um, you know, the people would wear that. Um, you know, it's not a soft fur, you know, like a bear or, or anything like that. It, it, you know, it has this coarseness to it and uh, would be very uncomfortable. They would wear that with the leather out and the hair in towards their skin and the... Um, itch and uncomfortable experience uh, they would use that as um, to, to compel them to prayer that that every time they were like oh I hate this you know shirt that I'm wearing oh I better go to prayer you know, they would use the uncomfortable reminder to compel themselves into prayer and that's the picture they've shaved their heads they've cut off their beard they're wearing the sackcloth they're wailing and weeping, Heshbon and Elo will cry out. Their voice shall be heard as far as Jahaz. Therefore, the armed soldiers of Moab will cry out. His life will be burdensome to him. So even the soldiers are going to be affected uh, with this great death and conquest that's going to happen to them. My heart will cry out for Moab. His fugitives shall flee to Zoar like a three-year-old heifer, for by the ascent of uh, Lahith they will go up with weeping for the way of Horneum. They will raise up a cry of destruction. So you know they're going to venture up into a small city, you know where where they previously occupied large spaces and had big cities that you know the survivors will band together to a very small location and they and as they ascend and as they go up there'll be this great crying and uh, you know mourning amongst all of them for the waters of Nimrim will be desolate for the gr green grass has withered away and the grass fails there is nothing Green, therefore, the abundance uh, they have gained and what they have laid up, they will carry away to the brook of the willows, uh, meaning that it won't be abundance anymore. It'll just, it'll be, you know, diminished, stolen, destroyed, and they'll be able to carry up the remnants of it. For the cry has gone all around the borders of Moab. It's wailing to Eglaim in its wailing to bear Elam, north, north to south is the idea. For the waters of Dimon will be full of blood because I will bring more upon Dimon lions upon him who, who escapes from Moab and on the remnant of the land. So this great destruction uh, that's going to come to them. So a people that were, <coughs> you know, large and, and influential and widespread and, uh, you know, a force to be reckoned with because of their arrogance and the way that they reared themselves up, you know, thinking of, of themselves as, you know, uh, being prideful and somehow um, self-accomplished. God is saying, I'm going to diminish you. I'm, I'm going to allow for you to be conquered. I, I don't mean to divert uh, into something so foolish, but you know, I, I just remember watching, uh, you know, for years Mike Tyson fight, and you know, it just we would laugh about it. You know, you'd spend a, a large sum of money to, you know, with your friends, everybody pulls together, and you know, somebody's got pay per view, and you pay this big sum of money to watch the fight, and the fight is 52 seconds long. You know what I'm saying? You're just like, I just, you know, whatever it was, I just spent a hundred bucks to watch 52 seconds of a fight. It was crazy. You watch him and, and, and you know, these, you know, these occasions where you just go and then out of nowhere, you know, I don't 
mean to use the term washed up, I guess, but you know, Buster Douglas shows up and, uh, you know, the cards are stacked in his favor. Uh, Mike has not been training the way that he should and he's not feeling well. But the greatest element that occurs is Buster Douglas has sat down and studied very carefully how Mike Tyson fights. And he finds some key flaws in the way Mike fights so that he can let Mike do his thing and he can just land a few select punches and weaken him. And it's the first time in Mike's fighting career that somebody starts hurting him, which that's astonishing to Mike Tyson. You can hear his interviews today and the realization of this man is hurting me very badly. The heart of the fighter is defeated. And quickly the fight is over and Mike Tyson is done. It was an astonishing fall to watch a man who for year after year had just stepped in the ring and ruined everyone that came at him. And he comes to the moment and in his weakness, he's destroyed. You hear him interview about those days that led up to that and all that he had to go through in his mind following and the pride and the arrogance that brought him down. The pride and the arrogance. Now he, he was given a grand opportunity and had risen. So many like him, right? I mean, we could go through history and talk about <coughs> world leaders and athletes and politicians and even preachers who have not had the proper respect for God. The one who rules over all of us. And whatever our greatness might be, if you aren't reverential of the God who made you, your day of demise is coming. Your day of demise is coming. I would flip that right around on our own nation. If we do not pay attention to the God who made us. I just reading uh, that conversation uh, recently about is this a Christian nation? Was this a Christian nation? And the point, you know, for all these people that are so confused about that, I, I get it. We weren't created by our founding fathers to be an exclusively Christian nation. I get that. But it was founded by Christians under the tenets of Christianity. Yes, it provided for the freedom to have whatever religion you wanted. It provided for that, but it was Christian in its foundation and its function. It's only Christianity that provides that freedom for other people. Go, you know, oh, well, I'm a Buddhist. I'm a Hindu. I'm a, go to those nations and see if there's any freedom there to be anything other than those religions they don't allow for it it's only christianity that allows that freedom for others if you don't protect the christianity of this nation nobody has freedom nobody has freedom the arrogance of turning against that is incrementally bringing judgment to us it's going to. The fall is inevitable if this nation does not bow its heart to the one who created it. Jesus Christ created this nation. And if this nation does not surrender itself in humility before the God who made it, judgment's coming for us too. And it's going to be cataclysmic. You know, this idea that it's just going to be like, oh gosh, golly, things are going to get tough. No, 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 no. Read these passages and understand how cataclysmic it's going to be. It's not going to be mild. If Israel didn't escape the judgment, why in the world would we think we're going to? 
humility before the God who made us is the thing that will prevent it. May it be in our hearts. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the clarity of your word. Lord, I pray that we would be men and women who listened to the leading of your Holy Spirit regarding our own selves. Lord, if you give one of us or all of us the opportunity to have a great voice in our nation, our family, our community, our state, we'd gladly do it, Lord. Help us to be men and women who are obedient personally. And regardless of what influence you give us, we'd be able to follow you, to wait upon you, to see your work in our hearts and minds, to see the fruitfulness of our obedience to you worked out in our daily walk. Fill us with your spirit. Give us the strength for obedience, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.